Coming up on Tech Nation, where will this world of AI take us? I speak with Mustafa Suleiman, the co-founder of Inflection AI and former head of AI product management and AI policy at Google. He explains it all, including the idea of containment. His book is The Coming Wave. Then, on to something far more mundane, but can't be ignored. Bloomberg columnist Adam Minter talks about his 2019 book, Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. He dropped it off at the thrift store. Where did it go from there? All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, genetics professor and noted researcher Sean Carroll spoke to me about his book, Brave Genius, a scientist, a philosopher, and their daring adventures from the French resistance to the Nobel Prize. Often we try to pigeonhole people by their professions, scientist, accountant, writer, fill in the blank. But human lives are complex, especially if you were living in Europe during World War II. Well, in the late summer of 1939, uh, Hitler invaded Poland, and France and Britain were pledged by treaty to come to Poland's aid, but they really didn't. They declared war on Germany, but they did not intervene in combat. And then what began after Poland fell was what's called the phony war, about seven or eight months where the armies were aligned facing each other, but outright war didn't erupt until May 10th of 1940, when Germany invaded Holland, Belgium and Luxembourg and France. And that's sort of the beginning of World War II in, in Western Europe um, for Britain and other countries as well. And in a short amount of time, to everyone's surprise, especially French people, France collapsed. And really in a matter of days, the outcome was uh, decided. It took another month for surrender. And uh, most a good chunk of northern France was occupied, including Paris for the next four years until the Allied invasion and the combination of bombing and ground troops and the resistance pushed the Germans out and eventually won the war. No matter what your profession, this caught you by by surprise. We're talking about two Nobel Prizes, ultimately, one in literature, one in physiology, shared by four people who lived through those times, and they were all living in Paris in 1940 when Germany invaded France. Who were they? What were they doing at the time? And how did their lives change? Well, their cha lives changed remarkably. And I'd even assert that it was in sort of a perverse way. The German invasion propelled them to their path to greatness. So um, for three of them, I think that was certainly true. One was the writer Albert Camus, who was a totally unknown, who was working on a mediocre newspaper in the spring of 1940 and toiling on a novel in his spare time. Another was a zoology graduate student named Jacques Minot, who at 30 years old was a relatively underachieving uh, graduate student who hadn't quite found his direction in research. And a third was uh, Francois Jacob, who was at the time a 19-year-old medical student hoping to become a surgeon. And what happened is in this sudden collapse of France, they all had to sort of find a new path. And for Jacob, he um, fled the country and eventually uh, joined up with the Free French Forces and served as a medic outside of France for several years. 
I'll get back to his story in a second. Uh, Jacques Monod stayed on site in Paris, joined the, the French resistance. And uh, at the same time he completed his doctorate, he started um, really living a double life as both a, a member of the resistance and, and a scientist by day. And Albert Camus had a bit of a journey back and forth between French Algeria and France, but published his first couple books during the war. And really by a matter of attrition of his colleagues in the resistance, wound up becoming the editor of what became the most famous underground resistance newspaper called Combat. And he wrote some of the most stirring and eloquent words uh, anyone's ever written in journalism in the few days of the uh, liberation of Paris in August 1944. And so the transformation for each of these people over the course of four or five years was a matter of either from anonymity to fame or from sort of um, a meandering, not such a great sense of urgency or purpose to a very clear sense of purpose. And in the case of Jacob's he was so badly wounded in Normandy in 1944 that he couldn't pursue a career in surgery, decided to pursue a career in science instead, and wound up winning the Nobel Prize 20 years later. This interview in 2013 with genetics professor Sean Carroll talks about brave genius, a scientist, a philosopher, and their daring adventures from the French resistance to the Nobel Prize. His latest book is The Serengeti Rules, the quest to discover how life works and why it matters. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Inflection AI CEO Mustafa Suleiman gives us a sense of AI writ large. What are its characteristics? How does it affect nations? And how might we contain it? Then, it's a global world, and not just for internet communications, but also for your cast-off clothes. Bloomberg columnist Adam Minter talks about secondhand travels in the new global garage sale. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. Every week I'm asked to interview guests who want to talk about AI. My answer is usually no. But then I came across Mustafa Suleiman and his book, The Coming Wave, Technology, Power, and the 21st Century Greatest Dilemma. As a co-founder of the AI company Inflection AI and an earlier one, DeepMind, not to mention his experience at Google in AI product management and AI policy, he provides insights that I felt warranted attention. Re-listening to the interview, I thought it best to remark on several references that you might not be familiar with. The first is the protein folding contest. You see, proteins are dynamic. They constantly fold and unfold, and some diseases are caused simply by the inability to fold correctly. Science has been trying to figure out the structure of each of our proteins. 
Since there are about 20,000 different kinds in our body, this is a significant undertaking. Every two years since 1994, the protein folding contest has attracted teams of scientists, all attempting to predict the structure of the proteins presented in that year's contest. In 2018, our guest company, DeepMind, came out of nowhere to win top honors with its AI software, AlphaFold. Many have suggested that the specific problem of protein folding is now essentially solved. You will also hear the term von Neumann machine. John van Neumann was a famous computer scientist whose concept about how to build a computer is how the great majority of our computers are built today. Yep, from every computer you ever used to that smartphone in your hand, it's a von Neumann machine. But there are some others, and that might be important in our future. Finally, synthetic biology. The ability to enter letters into a computer and produce organic DNA, or mnra such as we see in our vaccines or to go even further to create whole organisms so sit back and listen to this concept of the tomorrow that today's technology is creating and now mustafa suleiman mustafa welcome to the program Thanks for having me here. I'm uh, I'm very excited to talk to you. Now, our program, Tech Nation, for two decades now has also included biotech. That would be our biotech segment, which also runs in a separate podcast. But frankly, it's only been in the last two years where companies we interview are able to articulate how they're using AI, you know, from scraping 50 million scientific articles to find long-used drugs, which could be used for a different medical application or for figuring out how to program MNRA, like our COVID uh, vaccines, like how to get it in our bodies to do something we want to do as a treatment, and even using multiple AI search mechanisms at once to find completely new drugs. It seems like this happened all of a sudden. Well, I mean, in the moment, sometimes it can feel like things have, you know, just exploded out of the middle of nowhere. But when you actually look back on the trajectory, it's often a steady march of progress. Like I actually first encountered the protein folding problem back in 2011. Um, in our office uh, at DeepMind in Russell Square was right next to the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit. And um, I stumbled across a, a poster when I was visiting for lunch there, um, talking about it. And I went and looked it up and I was super curious. And I thought this is super awesome. It was obviously way too early for us at that time to actually even consider that problem. But when um, we ended up having a hackathon in, I think it was autumn of 2016, uh, in my group. So I ran the applied group at DeepMind uh, after our acquisition by Google. Um, you know, this was one of the projects that came up, like, could we actually crack, you know, protein folding? And a bunch of the team members, I think it was two or three people at the time, actually tried to see if we could apply AlphaGo-like techniques to CASP you know, the grand challenge of of protein, you know, folding, which was, um, I think it stood for critical assessment of structure uh, prediction. Uh, I think it was 13 at the time that we were going for. And, 
you know, we initially the model didn't do very well. And, you know, I think it was two years between actually that hackathon and a bunch of work that led to us successfully, you know, submitting the the kind of winning set of folds in 2018. So although we had a glimmer of hope back in 2016, it was a lot of work that went in to actually make it that. And then, it, then, of course, you know, once that had happened, it was still another, you know, like four years between 2018 and, and 2022 when, you know, the full suite of, you know, proteins were released. Yeah, I think at the time it was sort of like 200,000 had been solved. And I think um, when we open sourced it uh, last year, it was actually 200 million structures all in one go. So, you know, that felt like a bolt from the blue to most people. But in fact, it was the product of, you know, I guess, six years or so of, of, of hard work by lots and lots of people and an entire field that had been working on it for many, many years and all the kind of research of various different labs that contributed to that. In fact, uh, it it actually describes science. At another place in the book, you you write, scientific fields can stall for decades and then change dramatically in months. And so it's a great example of how we have one technology, computer science, so it's a science technology uh, of artificial intelligence introduced to proteins. And for those of you out there who are like, what? Proteins fold and unfold. Yeah, they fold and unfold. We don't exactly know how, at least we didn't. And you have to get there at the right time to intersect with the protein, if that's what your target is. And so this was a massive change, a massive improvement. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge step change. And and that's the nature of science, as you say. I mean, in a way, there are different components to science. Sometimes it's about identifying the question. Sometimes it's about specifying the question right and providing a target for investigation and research and that in the case of protein folding both of those were addressed by the time we got involved and then sometimes it's about combining new tools in reasonably novel ways but fundamentally really taking existing tools that we had applied in one area and using them you know to kind of whack some nails in in another area building on all the amazing work that researchers had been doing for decades in specifying the problem, defining the problem, framing the problem, establishing the benchmarks, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously that's the that's the scientific process. It's it's a collective effort. Now it's not just the AI which we can see advancing all around us. I mean if you know where to look, it's also the hardware technology. And an AI application just needs more computing power more storage, more everything. And we've been hearing for years about quantum computers and various people and groups in turn have been building them. The latest actually out of Google, Sycamore with a processing power of 70 qubits. Nobody knows what that is, but that's really great. (laughs) I shouldn't say nobody, most people don't. Tell our listeners, what do various quantum computers look like? How do they compare to everyday computers? How do you program them and get the data in and out? Well, we don't know how you program them. <laughs> and we actually don't <laughs> know that they're going to be good for a wide range of problems. They're actually a different architecture entirely to a typical von Neumann machine. Um, a classical computer um, has a fixed state representation for binary information, right? If what you put in 
broadly speaking, I guess with some exceptions, remains fixed. And, you know, that representation is stable. Um, that is completely unlike the way that uh, a quantum computer represents information. Um, and part of its efficiency is that that representation is much more you know, sort of fluid, if you like, and hard to wrap your head around. Um, you know, the idea that some piece of information may exist in many, many states simultaneously, and that's a more efficient retrieval mechanism than a traditional database uh, would be. And so the kinds of problems that that might be suited for are, you know, problems with vast search spaces where you're really looking for to, to either to solve an optimization problem or um you know your you know the, the the other classic example is where you're looking for you know to try all possible combinations in cryptography for example and ultimately that you know there's a concern that it would break encryption we now have post quantum encryption and there's really a race to update encryption protocols to you know sort of accommodate this new threat vector you know but as far as i understand it we're still quite a long way away from having these replace traditional you know computational processing for existing jobs that we do these will help with new you know sort of types of problems or, or long standing problems that you know traditional computers can't really help with so it's it's a hugely exciting development but i think it's a 15 to 20 year trajectory rather than a 3 to 5 year trajectory which is um, you know, mostly where I think the large-scale compute infrastructure for AI is is operating on. Well, this actually represents another one of those inflection points where our concept of things break apart. There are computers and not computers now, computers zeros and ones, and that's the way it is. And you, you referred to Johnny Van Neumann, the great computer scientist, and he had this whole vision. This is how it worked out, and we've been working on it ever since. We may be breaking now with such things as the quantum computer uh, to say, okay, this could be biological in nature or chemical in nature, or it could be, uh, it could be a number of things, but it only it only is good for certain applications. It's not going to come in and do your payroll. It's not going to come in and do your homework. You know, so the idea that there could be many different embodiments of a computer, you know, this may just be the beginning, the first or the second example, if the first example is what we have today. Well, there's also photonic computing or, or, or light-based optical computing, which uses lasers to store and, and process information. So you're right. There's there's a whole you know wider range of different types of computing. There's neural computing, which is being experimented with as well. You know, where where a, not a neural network that people will be used to hearing about in AI and software because that's still represented in the traditional way, but a neural network encodes and learns a representation at the point of inscribing the information in its model, which is very different to storing it in, you know, traditional zeros and ones. So it's a very exciting time in science, I think, because there's a lot of different paths that people are experimenting with to basically store and process vast amounts of information more and more efficiently. And I think over the next 20 or 30 years, at least one of these major areas is going to show, you know, real signs of progress. I mean, it's, I mean, it's going to work. One of these big areas is going to have a massive impact. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Mustafa Suleiman, the co-founder and CEO of Inflection AI, and previously at Google, the vice president of AI product management and AI policy. And before that, he was a co-founder of, of another company, which he spoke of, and Google acquired DeepMind. He's here today 
with the coming wave, technology, power, and the 21st century's greatest dilemma. Now let's move to political power. You quote uh, Xi Jinping, the president of the People's Republic of China. It was uh, 2013, and he said, advanced technology is the sharp weapon of the modern state. So will the nation or group of nations with the most advanced technology be the most powerful? A clear arms race, if you will? Well, he's stating the obvious in saying that. And it's always been the case that every tribe, nation, you know, group of nations of any kind races to adopt new technologies to try to build a better world for their citizens, right? And, you know, in that sense, we humans have always been technological animals. We've wanted to use tools to advance our own agenda. And the state in some ways is is really no different. It wants to try to invent and create at a faster rate than any of its peers or, or rivals even in order to see the values of that nation become and remain the dominant values. It's a competition for values. And so in some ways we shouldn't be surprised that people are framing AI or synthetic biology as new frontiers or new waves in you know the quest to build better nations for our citizens. And you know, on the whole, I think that is a good thing because you know that kind of competitive striving makes us even more creative than we might otherwise have been. Um, and I think it's been the engine of progress for as long as we can imagine. Um, I think the challenge is, is how do we handle that when the, the cycle times of iteration and development are getting smaller and smaller and the rate of progress is accelerating you know, really remarkably. And that kind of changes the balance of power because, you know, it it isn't going to be the case that nations are going to be able to control these technologies. And yet, you know, in in perpetuity, at some point, they spill over and everybody gets access. That's been the history of all science and technology for the history of our species. Like, that, you know, things get valuable And when they're valuable, everybody wants them naturally. And when everybody wants them, they get cheaper and easier to use. And so they spread far and wide. And that, in a sense, is a proliferation of power. A tool is a power. Um, And as the tools themselves get more powerful, you know, they they enable a greater one-to-many broadcast effect, you know, like instead of a car, you know, sort of just you know, you, you you know, being able to sort of drive into a lamppost or hit a tree, uh, i.e. having a local effect, you know, because one person drives this this automobile, you know, now we can have one person, um, you know, write some malware, and that can spread all over the internet, and it can have a global effect very, very quickly, or one person is able to broadcast on a podcast or, you know, um, on Twitter. So the nature of technology is changing the nature of our interconnectedness and the nature of its impact and therefore its effect on power. And that's really what I've been trying to describe. I'm just trying to grapple with those ideas in the in the coming wave, the book, uh, try to understand what it means for the future of nations. I have to ask you, can we expect that misinformation and or disinformation to now always be with us? I mean, will we ever be again able to determine the truth, given all the information, all the ability to change? Well, given everything, I don't need to go down the list. Well, I think we've always had 
misinformation. You know, we've always had a certain amount of deliberate attempts to confuse and disrupt and cause chaos. The difference now is that we have more truth and more lies than ever before. And so we're We've basically created tools, not just in AI, but before that with the video camera and, you know, um, with the ability to text and speak to the rest of the world using, you know, microphones and websites and apps and so on. All of these tools are in some creating more information. And then the, the, it, it creates this problem of, well, we're not, our brains our human minds are not advancing at a rate where we can process all this information. I mean, we're traumatized by what we see in the news visually, naturally. We're overwhelmed by the complexity of these hard problems like climate change or sustainable food. You know, we're confused by financial markets because they're so interconnected and chaotic. So that's where we have a, a sort of ingenuity gap. Um, we have created tools that are beyond our ability to fully understand and in some sense control. And that's the challenge of the next few decades is how do we actually use those tools to help us to make sense of the reality around us so that we can shape that reality as best we can. And that's the, the program of containment. Now, you talk about four aspects of this incoming AI technology wave, uh, asymmetry, hyper-evolution, omni-use, and autonomy. Can you give us a quick definition for each? Well, these, these two new waves of engineered life, both biological and computer life, are really going to define the next 20 years. Um, they're without question the big, you know, general purpose technologies that are going to happen um, during that time period. And the interesting thing is that they both have quite specific characteristics, some of which are similar to past general purpose technologies and some of which are unique to um, synthetic biology and AI. Um, so, yeah, you, you, listed, uh, you listed them. I mean, one would be these asymmetric impacts that they can have a one-to-many broadcast effect. That's actually unlike previous technologies, you know, whilst many, many technologies have enabled humans to have a one-to-many impact. Um, they haven't all been as asymmetric as these kinds of technologies that we're now um, seeing. Um, they evolve, uh, or they hyper-evolve. So they evolve in hyper-real time. And that means that because they're manifested in bits, in information space, rather than in atoms, right? In the case of synthetic biology, this would be the computational biology side of it, right? It means that, you know, they're not constrained by evolving and changing in the physical world, right? Like a normal, you know, alloy or a, you know, or a seed that we're trying to, you know, um, evolve, you know, cycle on cycle after every, you know, uh, year. Um, they're actually able to be updated and changed, you know, by the hour. And that's what we're seeing in AI at the moment. Um, new papers are published on open source platforms, on preprint platforms, not even really passing muster in academic journals, but they're high enough quality that people are using them for design inspiration and re-implementation of different benchmarks. And that's driving forward the rate of progress at an unprecedented rate. I've been speaking with Mustafa Suleiman, the author of The Coming Wave, 
technology, power, and the 21st century greatest dilemma. We'll talk more after a break. Both Whole Tech Nation programs and Solely Biotech podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, technation.com and biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, another global market. Not electronics, not transportation, not even pharmaceuticals. No, it's your old clothes. The ones you dropped off at the thrift store. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Mustafa Suleiman, the author of The Coming Wave, Technology, Power, and the 21st Century Greatest Dilemma. We've been talking about the various aspects of this incoming AI technology wave, the first being asymmetry, the second hyper-evolution, and now the third out of four, omni-use. And then if we take the third one, omni-use, um, traditionally, you know, many technologies have had just a few narrow uses. Uh, the hand axe, you know, was clearly general purpose at the time. It could be used for, you know, skinning a cow. It could be used for killing your enemy. It could be used for chopping down a tree. But, you know, it certainly couldn't be used for designing shelter, um, you know. And so... As we've moved into this new age, these technologies aren't single use or dual use. They can be used for absolutely anything and everything. If you try to interact with um, one of these general purpose language models online um, at my new company, Inflection AI, we make an AI called Pi, which you can find at pi.ai, stands for personal intelligence. It's one of the best language models in the world. It is uh, better than GBT 3.5, according to all the um, academic benchmarks that we test on. And it's incredible, the range that it can cover. It speaks many different languages. You know, it's pretty good at programming. Its knowledge of history is incredible. I mean, everyone would have played with these chatbots by now, but it's just remarkable to see. So they're very omni-use. 
And then the fourth characteristic, I think, is also very important. Um, it's that they dis- they they will be, and in, in fact today are, capable of of autonomy. And that means that they can operate beyond the bounds of immediate human control if they're designed to do that. So if they're let loose, they can have these autonomous characteristics. And that's unlike anything we've seen before. And that's very important what you just said. If they are programmed to be that way, if they're designed to be that way, you can also build the program such that don't go outside this boundary, don't go outside that boundary. So the idea of this magical thinking of they become HAL 9000 overnight doesn't happen. That is an excellent, excellent point. And honestly, the number of interviewers who start with the assumption that this is going to naturally emerge and that one day we'll wake up and suddenly that, you know, the AI will have manipulated us to let it out of a box or some crazy scenario. These are capabilities that we would engineer into a model or not. Like I happen to believe that um, over the next few years, the various Western democratic governments are going to mandate that certain capabilities are off limits because they're potentially dangerous. And if you do experiment with them, then you'll only be able to do so with a license or with some oversight or approval. And a lot of people say, well, that's not science. And that's, you know, you know, you, you can't tell companies what to do. And the reality is these technologies affect everybody and they're getting more and more powerful. And this is a moment when it's completely reasonable to have a little bit of the precautionary principle. It's not going to slow down innovation. It's not going to destroy our competitive chances commercially or geopolitically. It is just a sensible, you know, step of caution. You know, people can still be building these things. Absolutely, we should be accelerating open source as fast as possible. I can't say that clearly enough. Open source has been the engine of progress for for decades and decades in software. And it's amazing. We want more people playing with these models. We want more creators. Um, and likewise, you know, big companies with huge deep pockets should also be encouraged to, to work on these kinds of things, but with a little bit of oversight. And that's, I think, one of the things that I've called for in my book, The Coming Wave. And I, I think it's it's definitely going to be time for that sometime in the next few years. Let me ask you, there's, I could go, I have a list of, of, of definitions, terms that we could talk about, and I'm just going to pick out one. There's plenty of concepts in this book. Uh, what are fragility amplifiers? Yeah. So we're already in a state of fragility, right? We live in a world in the last 15 years where we've suffered multiple shocks and crises um, in the West. Um, We had the financial crisis of 2008. We've had various huge wars where, frankly, we've got a bloody nose and it's turned out that you know, our technolo- technological advantage that we thought we had after the Gulf War was in fact not as, um, you know, capable and, and effective as we thought. And, you know, we've had a series of political shocks, and that has all resulted in um, a lack of trust or a decline of trust, an unprecedented decline of trust. Every president of the United States, the last four, Um, irrelevant of party has been trusted significantly less than the previous one. And now we're at all time lows of public trust in the political process. So we live in, in, in fragile states, nervous, anxious, fragile states, people are 
fundamentally anxious about the future of democracy and the future of societies. And the the point about sort of flagging these potential amplifiers to that fragility is to say, well, you know, we're going to now reduce the cost of production of synthetic information misinformation, arguably, but even just regular information, we're going to reduce that cost to near zero. And anybody is going to be able to to do it, you know, in a, in a no-code environment um, with, um, you know, very high fidelity, extremely high quality in two or three years' time. And we're already starting to see that in the last few you know, sort of weeks and months in various conflicts, both in Ukraine and even in the last few days um, with the situation in Israel-Palestine, there's even more, um, you know, misinformation than than we've we've seen in the past, which is which is you know awful and tragic, given it's such a horrific uh, and painful moment for everybody. Um, and that that's something that we have to confront. That that we're going to have to deal with this challenge of constant supply. Of, of misinformation. And um, it's going to be a difficult time. Now, you just mentioned regulation, and that's the societal response to what one should do and companies should do. But I'm always interested in the ethical response, which is actually to individual behavior, individual approaches. And so I want to ask you, what are the ethical consideration and the creation and use of these technologies, both hardware and AI algorithms and data? What is ethical and what is unethical? Well, I think the important thing, in addition to the regulatory efforts and in addition to the industry efforts to um, self-regulate and raise their standards of behavior, which I think is a really critical piece and is something that is is underway, um, is that I think everybody has to take personal responsibility as well, because you know it isn't feasible or even desirable for the state to be so interventionist at every level in individual liberties. And so people have to ask themselves, you know, does this experiment that I'm now, you know, sort of embarking on with my desktop synthesizer have the potential to unleash something that I can't control? It's a it's a very reasonable and fair question. Ultimately, no one is going to know what you're up to in your garage in the next five to 10 years. And, you know, so more than ever, we have to promote the idea that people are asking themselves that question. Am I, am I really being precautious here? Am I really being careful? Am I getting feedback from other technical experts and friends? Um, you know, what would my mum think of this, right? You know, that we, what would my best friend think of this if I ended up causing harm as a result of this? And so I think that's maybe one sort of emotional framing for how we might proactively hold ourselves accountable as we embark on these new, you know, tools on using and developing these new tools. And that really actually relates to one of your last chapters, 10 Steps Toward Containment. Uh, and And those kind of actions are extremely important. But it's your closing chapter that I found interesting. It's the reason for considering all this, for taking action. And it's quite simply the future of humanity. Well, the stakes couldn't be higher. I mean, you know, we don't have any good reason why our species will survive eternally on this planet. We are, you know, a freak of nature, we think. 
um, we are, you know, the most complex um, object in the known universe. And I think we have an obligation to, you know, the future to try to do everything possible to preserve um, our human existence and ensure that we stay at the top of the food chain. Because you can imagine a moment in the next 20 or 30 or 40 years where we really have unleashed a new biological life form that might be immune from the kinds of diseases that we're vulnerable to, that might have strengths that we don't have, that, you know, might augment ourselves in ways that mean that there could be a, a super race that is able to outlive us. And I think that's going to be a very, very profound tectonic shift in what it means to be human. And if we don't start talking about that now, there is a chance that we might accidentally sleepwalk into it. And that would be a bad uh, day. Well, I'm going to finish on this, and I mean this with all all respect. Uh, I was looking around, as we do with every guest, uh, for the educational credentials before I realized that you're an Oxford dropout. Right. As in, <laughs> as in a, a different university. We have Bill Gates. We have Kevin Kelly, the founding editor of Wired, and the list goes on. So would you recommend it? Well, it worked for me. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I would recommend it to everybody. You know, it's definitely a crash course in, you know, trying to make it work at any cost. Um, and that is fun and energizing and very liberating. Um, the benefit of it, I would say, is that it shapes you very early on in your life into thinking, does this really work for me now? And if it doesn't, be prepared to change everything. There is no reason to endure whatever it is, the entire framework and structure that you're in, whether it's a family or relationship or school or job or city, everything is changeable. And I think that has helped me a lot in just having the confidence to say, actually, this doesn't work for me right now. There's something that I feel more moved to do. And I actually dropped out to set up a charity, which I ended up running with some friends for three years. And 20 years later, the charity is still running. So that meant a lot to me. And I learned a huge amount. And I got an education from doing that uh, nonprofit that I never would have got in continuing to read about, you know, abstract philosophy and so on <laughs> at Oxford. Um, so yeah, it worked out. So you don't drop out to sit on the couch and play video games. That's not the, that's not. The oh point. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. No, no, no. You're right. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. Mustafa, I can't tell you how great that's been. You Please know you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Come back and see us anytime. Thank you. This has been so much fun, Moira. Appreciate it. My guest today is Inflection AI CEO, Mustafa Suleiman. His book is The Coming Wave, Technology, Power, and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma. It's published by Crown. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. We buy new clothes and shoes and pots and pans and computers and smartphones and cars, and the list goes on. Where do they go 
after you're done with them. Bloomberg opinion columnist Adam Minter reveals all this in his book, Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. Well, Adam, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. And I do have a confession, and I'm pretty ashamed of it. Every so often, I kind of wake up in the morning, and it nags at me. But I haven't fully cleaned out my garage in five years. Partially, yes, but not fully. And I assume I'm not alone. No, in fact, you're doing pretty good. You're doing better than most Americans uh, by the the limited amount of data we have. Um, if you go into Southern California and you start going through garages there, we have data showing that well over half the garages there can't hold cars anymore because there's so much stuff in them. So if you cleaned out your garage in the last five years, it means you probably can get a car in there. And you two. <laughs> two, there you go. And as a result, you're doing better than most of the people in Los Angeles. So congratulations. Well. I got to tell you, I'm not going to wake up to that nagging thought anymore, but I still got to clean it out. Yeah, we all do. We all do. Now, in San Francisco, we have so many people moving here and moving between apartments and into new homes, um, and they go out to Craigslist, and they get rid of the stuff they want to move out and get more appropriate stuff. In fact, big on Craigslist moving around, baby furniture. Sure. That stuff must be through 50 babies before it's (laughs) it's gone swings and cribs and all kinds of stuff. But then there's the stuff that the locals don't want, and they roll it right down to one thrift store or another. Mm -hmm. What happens then? Well, you know, the hard truth is that if you can't give it away on Craigslist or sell it on Craigslist, they're probably going to have a hard time giving it away or selling it at the thrift store. And, you know, the the rough data shows that roughly only one-third of the stuff that goes on the shelves at a thrift store, a donation-based thrift store like Salvation Army or Goodwill, actually sells off those shelves. It's a very, very low percentage, and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one, there's just so much stuff, and there's more people donating than there are people who want to buy. Uh, the second reason is, is quality. Um, we all know this. They don't make it like they used to, and the quality of the stuff that's out there is declining pretty quickly, um, and there's good data on that. Um, you know, within businesses who have, you know, actually watched this. And as a result, again, it's something that's going to end up in a landfill. But the stuff that, it's not to say that it's a completely bleak situation. There is a vast market for used stuff around the world. And the stuff that doesn't sell on the shelves, more often than not, can end up in places that you wouldn't expect it. Okay, so I give my clothes away. Are those mostly sold, or are there good clothes versus bad clothes? There's good clothes versus bad clothes. I mean, uh, if you buy fast fashion, I don't know if you do, but say you... Fast fashion? Fast fashion. Forever 21, for example, you know, is very low quality. Um, I feel Forever 21. There we Does go. Does I, I like to say I feel Forever 21. <laughs> um, but these are, these are garments that, say, last one to five washes. And oh, yeah, those are bad. Those, those are, are bad. bad, yeah. And, and that's the kind of stuff that gets donated to Goodwill and to the Salvation Army and the Society of St. Vincent de Paul and all of these organizations and oftentimes ends up being disposed of, to put it politely, because there simply isn't a market for it in San Francisco, uh, in Indianapolis, anywhere, or for that matter, in the great secondhand clothing markets abroad, whether they're in Mexico, in India, in Kenya, any of these places, people know better. And it's they gone don't want past it. their useful life, if yeah, you will. Well, yeah, because the useful life is very 
very short. But if you have good quality stuff, um, it's going to find its way to somebody who wants it. That person might be somebody who buys it off the rack in San Francisco. If it doesn't sell off the rack in San Francisco, that doesn't mean its life is over. It can be repackaged and sent abroad, and there will almost certainly be a market for it there. Now we get to the contributions that are I'm always a little iffy about because what happens to them? It's electronics, mm-hmm. TVs, computers, phones. I mean, we built a bunch of stuff here that was never designed, never engineered to come apart into some essential elements. Right. Well, and that becomes a very complex story. So, you know, if you're going to donate your electronics to a Goodwill, um, they're going to test them, first of all, and they're going to make sure they're working. And then they're going to take a look at what vintage it is. If it's an iPhone, say, from the last three years, that's merchandise. You know, and, and they'll you, sell it. They'll sell it. You know, where things uh, start getting more tricky is, say, you've got a desktop from eight, nine years ago. There's not a market in North America for that anymore. And so Goodwill will actually have actually has partnerships with like Dell Computer and Dell makes sure that the stuff gets diverted into good recycling programs and is handled safely. But not all of your electronics go to the standard charities like the Goodwills and the Salvation Armies. Some of them are donated to electronics recyclers or sold to electronics recyclers who will then evaluate them differently. And they're going to evaluate them on what their potential is for reuse and oftentimes repair overseas in markets that have a lower price point and a desire to get hold of technology so you can bridge the digital divide. So in this book, for example, I followed electronics to Ghana. And I started out in Vermont with an electronics recycler there by the name of Robin Ingenthron. And he works with an importer from Ghana, a Ghanaian-American by the name of Wahab Odoi Muhammad. And Wahab buys, he likes to buy pretty much anything, but he'll buy flat panel screens, he'll buy laptops, he'll buy desktops, he'll buy phones. Um, he also buys cars, which is another story We'll altogether. get into there. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to there. And he brings them to Ghana, and these are devices that would never be used in North America. But in Ghana, there's a desire for that lower price point, a good quality device. An iPhone is going to be better than some of the off-label Chinese phones, for example, that are imported new into there. And it will have a much longer effective life than what you see in North America. So an extreme example that I document in the book is a television repairman in a place called Savalugu, which is a small town in northern Ghana. When I came across him, he was working on a 35, 40-year-old tube television, and he was repairing it. And that television would never have lasted 35, 40 years in the United States. It wasn't designed to be repaired that long. But there is a desire to keep these things going. The income level is low enough where there's the incentive to do it, and they've developed the skills, and it's extraordinary. And so, you know, I know there's a real stigma to exporting electronics overseas, but, you know, I wanted to tell the other side of the story, which is that there are people who really want these things and will keep them in use longer than they would be used, say, in the United States. Well, I know there are some people out there saying, that's fascinating, but hey, where's Ghana? (laughs) Right, right. West Africa. So it's in West Africa. Do you fly directly into Ghana? Uh, Well, let's see. I live in Malaysia, so uh, when I go to Ghana, I usually go through Dubai, and then you get a direct flight to Accra, which is the uh, capital of Ghana. So, you know, you can actually get a direct flight, I believe, from JFK, and I think there's also one from uh, Logan in Boston uh, to Ghana. Uh, You can go actually fly direct to Accra. I don't think you can fly direct from the West Coast. But, But it's a thriving, you know, nation. It's got one of the fastest growing economies in all of Africa, and it also has a thriving tech sector. And what's exciting about that tech sector is it reminds me what I saw in China in the early 2000s. It's initially, at least, being built off 
used stuff coming in from Europe, coming in from the United States, some of it coming in from Japan, and increasingly even used stuff coming in from China. That's the first taste that a lot of these entrepreneurs and software developers have of technology. And they will develop and they'll stop using secondhand at some point. But right now, that's their gateway. And it's, it's, it's fantastic. You mentioned that uh, the computers get sold off to or sent off to Dell, however the relationship is. And Dell puts them into good recycling programs. What's the difference between a good one and a bad one? Sure. Well, you know, in some sense, I, I'm a kind of a recycling radical. I think all recycling programs, if it reaches that point, are probably good on some level. But for Dell, what they want, because they're a major corporation, they don't want to be embarrassed. A good recycling program for Dell is something that is going to be environmentally sound, that's not going to put people at risk. So we've all seen the videos, say, of circuit boards being, quote-unquote, cooked in emerging market nations. They're, they're literally boiled over acid baths, and then the gold is extracted. And I've seen this up close and personal. The fumes are atrocious. It's just not good for anybody. Dell isn't going to send um, Goodwill's computers to that kind of operation. They're going to follow the supply chain. Um, A lot of it's going to flow into Europe. A lot of it's going to flow into Belgium, where the precious metals are recovered in very high-tech facilities there. Um, Dell has actually partnered, um, and I'm not sure of the status of it right now, but it was working on precious metals recycling um, plants in Dallas, partnering with a company called Wistron. And so that's what they want. And they were also experts exporting, um, and it's become more difficult recently, but they were also exporting some of the plastics to China. And they had partnered up again there to build one of the most modern and best plastics recycling facilities in the world. And they were actually recycling those plastics that were coming in um, from Goodwills in the U.S. uh, into new plastics that would then be put into new Dells. So it was very exciting. We always think of global trade as all these things coming together to sell it to us. Yeah. And then it's like, wait a minute, there's global trade after it leaves you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, reverse supply chains and forward supply chains. And, and increasingly, you know, I think there's a tendency in, in the United States and Europe to, to center the global economy on us, but that's not the way it works anymore. And, you know, as somebody who's lived in Asia for 20 years, I mean, one of the biggest changes I've seen is that these supply chains are now not centered entirely on the United States. They're flowing between Southeast Asia and China or Africa and Southeast Asia and China or Africa to the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And maybe you mean not... they don't come here first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's 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 very complicated. OK, so I'm I'm going to get rid of my car, I either trade it to the dealer. I donate it to my favorite charity. And we're not talking about selling it outright to somebody else, just an individual buyer. What happens to my car? In those first two cases. So very quickly, an evaluation is made of its value. Can it be reused? That is, can it still run? And if it can run, uh, that charity is going to try and find the most profitable place to sell it. Not many charities sell directly into the export market, um, but the export market is a very key part of the U.S. automobile recycling system. And cars that may look like they're not merchandise in the United States, just like computers that may not look like they're merchandise in the United States, can be shipped overseas. And I've seen this done in the Bronx, actually, um, where there are actual shipping yards designed to export cars to West Africa. And 
it will be sent overseas, and overseas, say in Africa, it will be reconditioned, repaired, oftentimes taken apart entirely and reconditioned, because the cost of doing so is so low in these places that it makes sense. And it's an interesting business, because one of the great outlets for what are called accident cars, or insurance cars, claims cars, is the export market. What's an accident car? Say you had an accident in your new Chevy, whatever, and the insurance company says this is going to be too expensive to repair in oh, the United the old, States. It's been totaled. It, well, no, it has. It's like it's been totaled. Here's your check. Yeah, here's your check. That car is not going to be recycled. That car is going to then go on to an online auction where anybody anywhere in the world can bid on it. Primarily in North America, people will buy it and export it overseas on the assumption that they can repair it for cheap. And if you go to these export yards, like the one I visited in the Bronx and described in the book, you'll see these beat-up cars, and they aren't just the cars that are being exported. The parts to fix them are stuffed inside these cars, and they'll be shipped to wherever they're going, say Lagos, Nigeria, or wherever it is. And when they get there, the labor is cheap enough and the market is strong enough that you can actually repair these things and put them back on the road. So you might have new carburetors, new fenders, new shoved in the car, and, and, and you would shipped be, with them one packet. The and kit. you would be astounded at the at the the ingenuity of the mechanics in these West African countries. And it's it's something that you know we're kind of familiar with here in the United States as well. We've long you know sort of looked up to Cuban mechanics who can keep those very old cars going on those roads, or Mexican mechanics. So we've seen this to an extent already. Um, but what we, I think a lot of Americans don't really appreciate is that how uh, how many of these cars are actually being shipped to Africa and reused there. Now, if a car can't be fixed, um, there is a very well-established recycling system in the United States. The cars are sent to uh, automobile recyclers who shred them in giant machines that can be as large as 10,000 horsepower, and you have giant hammers that can weigh 500 pounds apiece, spin at very high speed, and the car is fed in, and out comes fist-sized chunks of metal, plastic, and anything else that a car is made of, and there's various technologies that separate out these components into their individual commodities, and then they can be recycled into new cars and you know new electronics and all kinds of uh, different products. Bloomberg opinion columnist Adam Minter focuses on China, technology, and the environment. We discussed his 2019 book, Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, now out in paperback. And if that intrigues you, you might also consider his other book, Junkyard Planet, Travels in the Billion-Dollar Trash Trade. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.